BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Roundtable. And between politics and a new pandemic, what a week it's been on the political front. Seven Democratic candidates took the stage Tuesday night and proceeded to insult, attack, and talk over each other for two hours nonstop. When the dust was cleared, there was no winner, just a bunch of losers. And now all eyes on South Carolina, a must win for Joe Biden. And Super Tuesday, where one-third of all Democratic delegates nationwide will be chosen, probably knocking a couple of candidates out of the race. Meanwhile, the first homegrown case of the coronavirus has popped up in California. But not to worry, Donald Trump says it's all going to go away soon now that Mike Pence is in charge. A lot going on here to tackle it all. Eddie Baird, congressional reporter for BuzzFeed. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. Of course. Lauren Burke, reporter, writer for Black Press USA. Hi, Lauren. How are you? How are you doing? Great. Great to see you. And Matt Gertz, a senior fellow for the great media matters for America. Hi, Matt. Good to see you, Bill. So, um, quick little note. I uh, got in touch with my uh, research assistant last night. Send him an email. I knew he and his wife were going off for a trip to uh, Asia. And I heard back from him right away. And he said, we just arrived in Detroit. We didn't go to Seoul after all because the CDC said, don't travel to South Korea. Um, Now, I can think of better places than Detroit, (laughs) maybe, as an alternative. But the point is, coronavirus is starting to have an impact on travel, on supply chain, on other. And yet, um, Donald Trump says, one day it's like a miracle. It will disappear. Mike Pence, now in charge of the coronavirus response, says the threat remains low, while the infectious disease coordinator for the CDC said it's a matter of not if, but when we see the virus spreading here in the United States. What do you guys think? What's going on? How much can we trust what Trump is saying or the CDC is saying or Pence is saying? (laughs) Well, we definitely can't trust Mike Pence. And obviously, without a medical professional in charge, it's pretty scary to watch. And I think it was yesterday or last night that there were 60 confirmed cases in the United States. And funny thing, in 2019, we had 34,000 people die of the flu. So what is to say that you know, this couldn't spread to the point we at least get to that number. Nobody knows. Obviously, we saw the stock market have one of its worst weeks uh, this week because of this. And as usual, um, the president is in a situation where he, his arrogance and his sort of lack of general knowledge about anything is scary to watch. And we have a, what could be a serious problem. And a real test of leadership, Addie. Oh, absolutely. This is one of those moments where I think, you know, during 2016, we would talk a lot about how impossible it was to imagine Trump as like a consoler in chief or leading the country through. 
a pandemic. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, that that it is it is just as weird as we expected. One other interesting thing about coronavirus, one of my colleagues wrote a story um, this week about the way that it's affecting Democratic voters abroad. And they're not able to go in, in um, China and in South Korea. Mm. Democrats hmm. abroad aren't able to go cast their votes and they're going to have to vote online. And so it's just this collision course of coronavirus and, and the 2020 election. Right. And Matt, we have seen the real impact on the Dow had uh, Headline in the New York Times this morning, stocks take dive not seen since 2011 over the virus crisis. Yeah, and, and I think we are beginning to see uh, what the response from the White House is going to be to that. Uh, for the first several weeks of uh, the outbreak, uh, this was very much a response built around uh, telling everyone that things were going to be fine, that coronavirus was not such a big deal. Uh, but the uh, drop in the stock market has clearly spooked the president. And so the response has been to uh, run a campaign against the media uh, to say that uh, journalists are just trying to get everyone hysterical uh, because they want to defeat the president uh, for re-election. Uh, and that's, that's a very dangerous message. This is a time where the public needs to... Uh, be able to get information from the press, needs to have confidence in the information that they are getting from the press. And you at Media Matters, I know, and your colleagues have been tracking this, right, where this is coming from. It's this same old circle, isn't it, between the White House and Fox and Friends in the morning? Absolutely. So on Tuesday uh, overnight, the president was traveling back from uh, his state visit to India. And while he was on Air Force One, he was watching Fox News. We know this because he was tweeting segments that he was seeing, uh, including uh, from Laura Ingram's Fox show about uh, coronavirus itself. Um, can, can we just hold there just a minute and just take, take a little listen? Uh, this is Fox and Friends, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, thanks to Media Matters, who put this little montage together of Fox voices on what this virus is all about. The pandemic party. Sadly, the left is already, yep, politicizing tragedy. Now, watching the media coverage today, it seemed like some of the Trump haters were actually relishing in this moment. A new avenue it was, a coronavirus. That's a new pathway for hitting President Trump. Facts don't matter to the Trump haters. They learned from the never let a crisis go to waste philosophy of Rahm Emanuel that many of them are frankly so sick with their anti-Trump fever that they actually consider this virus a political godsend. Remember what Rahm Emanuel said once upon a time. No, no, uh, no, let Never no emergency let. go to waste. Yeah, so how cynical can you get? Right, and so, so this is how this works. So Tuesday night, uh, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram are pushing this idea that this is a sort of conspiracy by the media to overtake Trump. And the by, deep state. And the deep state. Um, by Wednesday morning, the president is tweeting that MSDNC and CNN are, are doing this in order to, to get him. Uh, he continues that line of attack uh, on uh, during his press conference that night. Uh, and we're seeing more and more of these tweets uh of attacking the media since. Meanwhile, Fox is sort of turning up the heat and making that more and more part of uh, their coverage of the story. And so now we're off to the races. Mick Mulvaney was at CPAC this morning. Uh, 
running basically the same scam, saying that this is all like the media trying to take down Trump. Uh, and so we're going to see and hear more and more of that in the days to come. It's very dangerous. Uh, which alarm certainly <laughs> and, and leaves the, the American the question, people wondering what the hell right, is going the on. The question is, why would anyone need to make this into a political moment of us versus them or some sort of uh, referendum on gaining politically over a health crisis or a potential health crisis. Um, so, but it, it mixes incompetence with the rejection of scientific fact and the sort of distrust of expertise that we always seem to see from this crew. But I, I have no idea why they need to do this or why this is something that they want to engage in. One would think, right, right. at a moment like this, that both <laughs> sides would stand up and say, hey, oh, this is coming at us. We better figure out the best way to respond. What, what do you hear in Congress? Is Congress or Democrats and Republicans in Congress at least thinking about some joint approach? I mean, the thing that, that is a little funny is that much of the Democratic response to coronavirus has been a response to Trump's response to coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just to remind everyone, I'm sure your listeners know, but it seemed like Trump didn't know. Congress has to appropriate funds. Congress has to get that passed. Then the president can sign it. It it does seem likely to happen. But, um, you know, election years are a time when Congress loves to do as little as possible. And this is going to force them to actually have to pass a a massive spending bill right as we head into Super Tuesday when a lot of them would love to be out on the campaign trail. Right. Um, God forbid that anybody would ever use an, a pandemic uh, for political purposes at all. I mean, certainly Donald Trump would never have done that. Oh, well, maybe he did. This is uh, back in the times of the <laughs> Ebola crisis. Here is a businessman, Donald Trump. We have a tremendous problem in New York because President Obama would not stop the flights. So now we've got Ebola. He should be ashamed. <laughs> this is on a par of blaming the market crash the first day on the fact that so many viewers were turned off by the Democratic debate that they went out and sold their stock the next day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is, is something else that we heard uh, from Fox News at the time. I mean, if... if if we're going to look back at Ebola, the very same people who are now claiming that Democrats and the media are politicizing coronavirus, the line in 2014 wasn't just that Obama was doing a bad job. It was that he was from these the same people, Rush Limbaugh, Laura Ingram, et cetera, et cetera. The argument was that he was deliberately trying to get Americans infected with Ebola as part of a reparations effort for Africa. That was the argument at the time. It was the most disgraceful thing I think I have seen, and I have been watching a lot of Fox News for a very long time. Yeah, yeah th thank you, by the way. That's your job. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're glad that somebody's watching so the rest of us uh, don't have to. But I remember one big difference. Um, this was back in the days when we had White House briefings. Right. And I used to go every day mm -hmm. for the White House briefings when there were White House briefings. And during that Ebola crisis, every day there were briefings with health professionals. Uh, I remember coming in and, and, and they would lay out exactly what the facts were that day, what, what, right. you know, what they were doing, what was working, what wasn't working, and uh, which is kind of what you would expect and what the American people deserve. We don't see that this time. 
No, we don't see that this time. And and we haven't had a White House briefing in... Well, a year and a half. Yeah. Right? And I mean, you know, there are people who are <laughs> counting the days, but at this point, it's, you know... They're done. They're, they're done. And, and, and it's really, like you said, in a moment when I think people are craving information, but, you know, that's the other piece of this. I'm not at all convinced that if we had White House briefings that we would be getting credible information that can help people keep people safe, inform the public. So, you know, maybe it's good. <laughs> well, in fact, at the announcement, it wasn't really a briefing where the president announced that Pence is in charge, where he was flanked by health professionals. They contradicted him on the spot. Right, which is why they didn't want, you know, they won't. They don't want Dr. Anthony Fauci talking. I mean, God forbid the person who's an expert in viruses would actually be talking. But the entire point of that press conference in terms of who was talking was to be a sycophants on air to Donald Trump and talk about how great president's moves are. So the whole thing is a waste of time because their entire narrative is, of course, his ego, ego management, and shielding their incompetence. So this is what the government has become under Donald Trump. And there is a political dimension to this, too, Matt, isn't there, which is that part of the president's re-election message is the economy, it's booming, it's never been better, right. the market's never right. been higher, and it just kind of takes the wind out of those sails. Sure, and the reporting out of uh, White House correspondence is that that is something that he is very much fixated on, not on the actual response, on an actually making sure that the outbreak does as little damage as possible, but in uh, preserving his uh, political and electoral future. Um, and, and that, I think, is, is why you're seeing this argument that, uh, you know, it's, it's the media trying to get him, it's the Democrats trying to get him. Um, you know, he is not actually capable of dealing with this on a real level. I mean, I, th I think the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I think in the first weeks, Trump was kind of disengaged uh, from coronavirus. And look, the there's not a, a good Pur purposely, way for this. probably. Yeah, yeah, I but, think he was hoping it would just go away. But I, I think that's actually, for, for in the sort of realm of possibilities, I think disengaged Trump is much less dangerous. Than <laughs> <engaged>. <laughs> I think you want him as far away from the actual response as possible because all he knows is what he's hearing on Fox News and how he can sort of weaponize that for his own political and personal benefit. Right. Uh, so we'll be following this. Now, turning the page... If the uh, Republicans' uh, message was muddled on coronavirus, the Democrats had a chance Tuesday night to get up on stage and to broadcast a clear message about what was wrong with Donald Trump and why it's important to replace him. Um, and instead, here's what we heard on stage <laughs> Saturday night, or Tuesday night. Let you didn't write that bill. I wrote that bill. I'm not out of time. You spoke over time, and I'm going to talk. If we don't, why am I stopping? No one else stops. Uh, that was that was triggering. That was actual sound from the Democratic debate. Arn, what the hell's going on? I mean, if I may, well, let's put an I asterisk mean, on this and say, yeah. what a shit show. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I don't want to be too overly critical. I think it is hard to manage when you're a moderator. You have seven people standing up there. At the same time, 
it was glaring that CBS is not does not, of course, have a 24-hour network where they have anchors who are used to having these types of conversations on a regular basis. And when you put up people yeah. who are not, like Nora O'Donnell and Gail King, who do sort of this infotainment news, it's not real news and hard news, and they don't really know the issues, they don't follow up, and they don't control the conversation, this is the result you get. Then on top of everything else, we had Tom Steyer on stage, who... I think is a nice guy, but only really wants to talk about how we can't stand up here and do this because this is helpful to Donald Trump. This is another thing that Pete Buttigieg tends to do. This is a competition. This is politics. This is the primary season. We're running a primary race. You're going to have competition. This is the conversation you're going to argue with each other. So I'm a little tired of Tom Steyer, every debate telling us that this is going to help Donald Trump. We know that. So in, in addition to the fact that the debate format itself was a disaster, you just had the sort of lack of real content going on that was not called on. Then remember, we did have a moment there where there was five moderators. Why we have five moderators in any debate? I mean, DNC should have just made a rule at the beginning. You cannot have five moderators. So anyway, that was, it was bad. So I actually thought Biden did look good out there. Uh, Warren, as usual, looked good out there. Buttigieg did well. So there, there were moments when the candidates were able to overcome the format, but not many. Right. Um, Matt, a friend of mine said, uh, <laughs> actually texted to the, CBS producer in the control room <laughs> the night of the debate. It's too bad that Nora doesn't have a taser. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe is, is what they needed. Maybe, though, you know, I, I, frankly, I like it when the candidates fight. I think that's how you actually figure out, you know, how they respond to uh, criticism, which, which well, they're all going to need to be able to do okay. in a general election. But I want to say this. We, just interrupting, you know. We were always accused on Crossfire of crosstalk and overtalking. You never heard that bad on Crossfire. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Seriously. The, there, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do yeah. it. We, yeah. The NBC yeah. debate was also extremely combative. It had candidates really throwing right. haymakers at each other. Uh, it was, I think, very useful for figuring out uh, information about the different candidates. Uh, it did not devolve into this sort of cross-talking yell fest uh, the way the CBS debate did. And that, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, moderating debates is incredibly difficult. I don't want to, you know, uh, take that away from anybody, but uh, they didn't really do their job here. No, they it didn't. Just, it Any didn't winner? Work out that way. Um, no. <laughs> um, I don't think there was a winner out of that debate. Like Matt was saying, um, I think that the debate uh, on NBC recently was quite good, and there yeah. was a very yeah. clear winner, and it was Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely. Who came out of that debate with a, clearly a new strategy. She was ready to go on the offensive. I thought she looked really good. And then this most recent debate, this CBS debate, was combative without the substance of the NBC debate. And I think everyone looked bad. I think nobody got good shots in. I think that everyone who loved a certain candidate came away thinking that they did excellent and everyone else um, was exhausted and ready to sleep for a thousand years. <laughs> so that was me. So, right. So uh, it all leads up to, and that debate was in Charleston, South Carolina, because the fourth primary and maybe the most important ones, I would say definitely the most important one so far, will be Saturday in South Carolina. Uh, the stage was set for that a couple of days ago, the morning after the debate, by uh, the great Congressman James Clyburn from South Carolina, making this 
Not a total surprise announcement. We don't need to make this country great again. This country is great. That's right. That's not what our challenge is. Our challenge is making the greatness of this country accessible and affordable for all. If it's health care, is it accessible? Is it affordable? Education, is it accessible? Is it affordable? Housing, energy, making it accessible and affordable. And nobody with whom I've ever worked in public life is any more committed to that than Joe Biden. Lauren, Joe Biden needs South Carolina, doesn't he? Yeah, he he better win in South Carolina. <laughs> he absolutely better win in South Carolina. And they're now setting the expectations fairly high. It's funny to listen to, to uh, Jim Clyburn talk like that. You'd think he would have endorsed Bernie Sanders, given the issues that he brought up. Uh, but I don't think it was a real surprise, obviously, that Clyburn endorsed Biden. And frankly, I don't think anyone cares. I'm, I'm totally convinced that nobody walks into a voting booth saying to themselves, well, wait a minute. You know, so-and-so, Jim Clyburn, did X, so I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I think if Joe Biden wins, he would have won anyway. But it was a nice media moment for him. It was covered live on cable. Uh, but I, I think that if, if Joe Biden does not win, it's a huge problem. The good news is if he, if it, you know, if, if somebody comes close to him, like Bernie or Buttigieg, at least Tuesday is right around the corner <laughs> so he can recover quickly and the cycles you know, of media won't be too many between the two things on Super Tuesday. But he's got to do well. Uh, tomorrow, and he's got to do well Tuesday. So it is curious as to what impact Biden's winning or whoever wins in South Carolina will have on Super Tuesday, because Super Tuesday yeah. is a whole different kettle of fish. Right. Uh, I keep hearing different, 14, 15 states, whatever it is, but it's one-third of all the delegates to the convention will be decided on Tuesday. And there hasn't been a lot of attention to those states yet other than on the part of Michael Bloomberg. Though also the degree to which they it will be decided on Tuesday is I think very up in the air. Uh, California, for instance, is going to take yeah. a very long time to report its results, and so we could be waiting on that uh, for quite a while. Though the media story that will come out of Super Tuesday may be very different to what it might seem looking back at the results a couple of weeks later. I saw the figure this morning. I think it was four hundred and fifty-nine million dollars that uh, Michael Bloomberg has spent so far. Uh, and that is, of course, all from $409 million, all out of Mike Bloomberg's pocket. Let's talk about that. Um, but first, we'll take a, a quick little break here on the Bill Press Roundtable, the Bill Press Pod with Lauren Burke and Eddie Baird and Matt Gertz. We'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the International Association of Firefighters, the good men and women of the IAFF under President Harold Schaitberger, representing uh, about a half a million firefighters and paramedics here and in Canada. Uh, they were the first union to endorse Joe Biden, so they have a lot on the line on uh, Tuesday, uh, Saturday, rather, in uh, South Carolina. We salute them, thank them for protecting American families, and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you 
where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with Roundtable here, spending, spending, spending. So um, Michael Bloomberg, as I mentioned, by the way, we're here with uh, Lauren Burke from uh, Black Press USA, Addie Baird from BuzzFeed, and Matt Gertz from Media Matters for America. Michael Bloomberg spending $409 million, all of his own so far. Tom Steyer, $254 million out of his own pocket. Bernie Sanders is third with $117 million, all from small donors. And we will see what all that money gets Michael Bloomberg on Super Tuesday. What do we expect, Addie? I don't know what to expect at this point, <laughs> but I do think it will be really interesting. Bloomberg has been at the center of this conversation for weeks now. We have not seen him actually contending. He skipped the first four states. He's had this Super Tuesday strategy. I think from a political science perspective, it's pretty fascinating to kind of watch if this is a if this is a possible workable strategy. I will also say on Super Tuesday, there are not just presidential primaries. There are also some really fascinating down ballot primaries um, in California where, uh, you know, like Matt said, we might get uh, results in, you know, several weeks. But we've got a lot of interesting House primaries there. Um, there's a really interesting primary in Texas. Uh, Henry Cuellar, who's a very conservative Democrat, has a progressive challenger who I think could make waves. Um, it'll be really fascinating to watch. So if anyone gets tired of presidential contests, <laughs> look a little further down the ballot. Yeah. Matt, the to me, this, the center of the strategy, the Bloomberg strategy, with all that money and coming out, if you will, on Super Tuesday, you still need a candidate, right, who can deliver the news, deliver the message, right, excite crowds. Uh, yeah. To me, that's the the element that may be lacking in the Bloomberg plan. Well, and I think that that, that is the bet, right? That uh, that matters less than we think it does. That the, and that trying to reach voters through uh, paid media and through earned media. I mean, you know, as Eddie said, he's been the center of the conversation. Uh, will be the thing that matters more than whether you can get, you know. 15, 20, 30,000 people out to your events to hear you give a speech. So yeah. we'll see. So, Lauren, when I saw, so we see Michael Bloomberg like, during the debate. Let's take the debate. Uh-huh. The last <laughs> debate, there were three Bloomberg ads right. that ran during those two hours. And during, in those ads, man, he looked great, right? <laughs> he looked like he was in charge. He had a message. He delivered it. And then you see him on stage. <laughs> Oh, not wow. quite. Yeah. So, yeah, as, as, as a kid from the Bronx, I'm just going to say, I mean, I like the fact that there are a lot of New Yorkers involved in this, although ultimately Donald Trump is an embarrassment to New York. <laughs> um, I just think Michael Bloomberg is going to lose and lose big on Tuesday and, and, and in South Carolina. I think that there is absolutely nobody waking up in the morning thinking about Michael Bloomberg. There never was except Michael Bloomberg. It doesn't matter to me how much money he spends. I think Bernie Sanders is the one that's probably going to win California and surprise people in other states. But it's going to be somewhere between him and Buttigieg and Biden 
and Bloomberg is just burning cash. <laughs> and there's just nothing that tells me that this guy is going to win anything on Tuesday. Well, I'm, gl- I'm <laughs> you know? glad you mentioned Bernie because I want uh-huh. to go. I want to go there next, and I'd like to get each of you your take on what we keep reading about, which is this angst in the Democratic Party, particularly Addy on some of these down ballot uh, in some <laughs> of these down ballot races. And Buttigieg keeps saying this, that if Bernie's at the top of the ticket, it means automatic reelect for, for, for Donald Trump because um, he'll just attack Bernie as a socialist and everybody who supports Bernie as a socialist. Is this, what do you, I mean, is this angst well-placed or could this be sort of like 2016 where everybody said almost the same thing about Donald Trump in 2016? He's too wild to ever be nominated, and if he were nominated, he could never win the White House. I think it's completely misplaced. Bernie Sanders. You think Bernie could win? I absolutely think Bernie Sanders could win. I think that polls are not gospel, but what we see over and over is in head-to-head races, Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump. I think that Bernie, I, I hate the comparisons between Sanders and Trump. I think they're very irresponsible. But in this way, I think that they are similar. There is um, a misunderstanding in the pundit class, in the establishment Democratic uh, class, that completely um, panics when you have somebody outside of this realm who's doing well. Bernie Sanders has showed incredible strength in these early states, and the thing you need to win the Democratic nomination is the support of Democrats. Buttigieg himself said early on in this race that they're going to call you a socialist no matter what. They are going to call Michael Bloomberg a socialist if he is a Democratic nominee. And so I don't think that, you know, people love to talk about how Bernie Sanders hasn't been vetted. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't. I pretend to to think that like he's just going to walk to the nomination. But I think that this angst is misplaced. I think that Bernie Sanders um, excites the Democratic base in a way that a lot of people underestimate. He is winning, and that is what matters. And polls have him winning in matchups with Donald Trump. I think it's misplaced. Mm-hmm. Matt? I'd go further and say I find this entire conversation about about Democratic angst baffling. And I think it is quite overblown. There are lots of things that if the Democratic establishment actually wanted to roadblock Bernie Sanders by doing, like very simple things that they could do, um, like a bunch of Democratic leaders could endorse someone, anyone. Like they, <laughs> they just haven't, right? I mean, if you look back at 2000, if you look back at, uh, you know, the, the Gore-Bradley uh, primary, Gore was endorsed by not only the the sitting president, but by the Democratic leaders in the House and the Senate. And all the, the leadership, with the, with the exception of, of Clyburn now, um, have not weighed in in any real way. If the Democratic establishment actually had real angst and wanted to do something about Bernie Sanders, everyone would endorse Joe Biden today. Or Lauren. Um maybe three or four of the other candidates would drop out and all centrist candidates, right, and all unite behind one. So it would be Bernie. That might be another way to block it. Bernie versus one person rather than Bernie versus three or four. Yeah. Ain't going to happen. Right. It's not going to happen. But the entire narrative about how we can block Bernie, how we can stop Bernie, how we're going to stop Bernie, you know, 
the entire thing to me is rooted in what Addie said and part of what Matt said, which is that, you know, the Democratic establishment has an inherent problem with anyone who challenges it. And we're yep. talking about a guy who's questioning Wall Street money. It's the same panic that happened over Elizabeth Warren because she was talking about that. And I got to say, I mean, again, I, I my grandmother's house is in Crown Heights, New York, and uh, my half my family's from Virginia, the other half, half's from New York. I was at Sanders' rally yesterday in Richmond, and people could not get in. There are people outside who could not get in because the excitement around him is real because he's ha he has a populist message that people understand. I can't help but to think that some of this, maybe 10% of it, is rooted in anti-Semitism, quite frankly, because what he's talking about is the same thing that FDR talked about. We never, we don't regard FDR as a socialist. Uh, he was from Hyde Park and, you know, he's a wasp. But th this sort of discussion around income inequality and poverty is shocking to the establishment. And when you have millionaire news anchors asking questions that live in Manhattan, they, they don't talk about this stuff. And we have 47, we have one out of every seven Americans living under the poverty line. That's what Sanders talks about. And there's something about the panic about him that to me, I think would not be happening if he was not a member of the Jewish faith. So that's sort of the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, but there he is. I, I just think that he can win. Trump proved that he could win because Trump is an example of, some, of the voters in part saying, screw the system, we want somebody in here who's totally different. Well, they could say the same thing about Sanders. Does he you win know? Win Virginia? Bernie win Virginia? Uh, you know, I, I can't tell, but I'll tell you what. The parking lot is so packed you could not park in <laughs> Richmond. Uh, he'll do well. Yeah. I can't. I really just can't tell. I think Buttigieg actually will do no. well as well. But I, I do think he could win Virginia. To uh, answer your question, I'm sorry. I want to get to your favorite stories of mm -hmm. the week. But before I do, the one the one big story which we can't uh, leave untouched, and that is the at one time the most powerful man in Hollywood is now behind bars. Harvey Weinstein, <laughs> right? Um, found guilty on two counts, not on the most serious charge of predatory sexual assault, but still. He's behind bars, and he faces more charges in California. I'd like to know, how important is this, and do you think it will make any difference? I think that the Me Too movement sparked by the reporting about Harvey Weinstein has begun to make a difference. I think that it hasn't gone as far as many people hope it would, as far as it probably ought to, but it has started to upend our world and to have Harvey Weinstein actually convicted is is really remarkable. I think that it affirms that um, this reporting was so important, hugely impactful and is kind of, um, you know, the next step with with some of these men who have never faced any consequences. Right. And Matt, this is one place where the media really delivered, right? The New York Times and the New Yorker. It did, though we shouldn't forget uh, NBC's disgraceful handling of the mm -hmm. story yep. while we do right. that. Um, you know, the, their uh, steamrolling of Ronan Farrow and preventing him from, from doing his reporting there, right. even though he clearly had the goods and was able to walk into the New Yorker with that story. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think we, we shouldn't uh, let that be forgotten along the way. Make any difference? Has it already made a difference? Um, I think that uh, certainly it makes a difference because when Cy Vance, uh, who is the DA in Manhattan, is saying that you know this is changing the way we prosecute these types of cases in terms of the need for actual evidence, um, 
that would tell me that. But the jury was very deliberate and very specific about what they did out there. Right. And uh, you have to understand the counts that they dropped, they dropped for a reason. Um, I also think that there was, um, you know, I, I do think that at the end of the day, what Harvey Weinstein is doing is just way over the top sexual assault that should have been prosecuted a long time ago, Me Too or No Me Too. You know, it's really, he is an extreme example. I actually think the fact that Toronto Burke, you know, uh, centered this, wanted to center this movement around African-American women who are ignored and it's sort of been stolen by Hollywood actresses, I think is problematic because his example is so extreme and unprecedented that it's hard to think that, you know, we're going to, it's hard to think that this is something that should not have been dealt with a very long time ago when you listen to the details of this case. I also mm-hmm. think, too, with regard to the media, there was a lot that was not uncovered by Ronan Farrow. There's, I mean, I've read Megan Toohey and Joey Cantor's book and mm-hmm. Ronan Farrow's book, and they were quite good. But one of the things that this proves is when you get into civil court, or in this case criminal court, and you start detailing things and you start finding out that your key witnesses were you know, having consensual relationships with the accused that no one knew about and two and 300 emails. That's an interesting thing that the media didn't, could not get to because the media does not have the power to subpoena and get that level of detail. So there was a lot of interesting aspects of the trial, say the least. <laughs> Just say the least, right. All right, covered a lot of territory. I always ask you to come with one story that sort of struck you during the week uh, as uh, worth thinking about and maybe even sharing with us. Um, where do we start, Addie? So my favorite story of the week was something published uh, by the Times yesterday. Um, Katie Weaver published a story headlined a royal Instagram mystery, and it is an instant classic. Um, It is about, it is this long investigation of the way that um, the two Instagram accounts of uh, Kensington Royal and Sussex Royal. So there's Harry and Meghan's Sussex Royal Instagram account, and there's William and Kate's Kensington Royal account. And Kensington Royal used to be all four of them. Sussex Royal split not too long ago, and the weirdest thing has happened. It's We have all this evidence that Harry and Meghan are much more popular than William and Kate, but William and Kate's Kensington Royal account keeps growing exactly <laughs> along with the Sussex Royal follower account, and Katie Weaver does this incredible investigation and makes a very compelling case that somebody behind the scenes is basically buying followers for Kensington Royal so that they don't get leapfrogged by Sussex Royal. <laughs> it's so good. It is the most incredible thing I read this week. I absolutely loved it. Everyone should read it. This reminds me of Michael Bloomberg paying people to put up <laughs> little praises of Michael Bloomberg online, right? Not, not too different. No. no. Yeah, true story. Sure. Uh, So as regular listeners to this podcast know, my favorite media conspiracy theory, one that I do not believe but is fun to speculate about, (laughs) is that the Democratic Socialists of America have infiltrated the real estate sections of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and are trying to bring about the revolution. Um, To wit. uh, I fully believe this for the record. I give you this story. For these five luxury homes, just add water, which is about uh, the the process of – making artificial lakes for your mansion and includes this line uh, from a uh, broker associate for Sotheby's International Realty. If you want 100 acres plus and you want horse facilities and all of those things that go with it, you're going to have to find something inland. 
Uh, for those of you at home who are interested, uh, a small two-acre pond can be constructed for about $50,000, while large lakes cost millions. Um, Adrian Gaffney, thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that makes me think about what to do with our little property in California. Get a little lake. A little lake, a little right. pond. Maybe. Bill can have a little lake as a treat. Laurie? <laughs> uh, n- mine is not anywhere near as interesting as those two. It's just on the federal lynching bill passing. Uh, I think it was yesterday. Uh, mm. There's been three... There was two other attempts to pass a, a lynching bill that had a federal penalty. Uh, there were four members who voted against it. That's where it's kind of interesting. And one of them, Tom Massey, who's from Kentucky, uh, who I find very interesting because he always votes typically against more punitive measures in federal legislation, specifically against mandatory minimum. minimum. So he's making the argument in voting against the federal lynching bill that we already have a law that you know, outlaws murder. So why do we need an extra penalty? And oddly, I actually agree with him. It was more of a ceremonial moment than anything else, but still sort of interesting and uh, sort of sort of odd that that it was brought up at the time. It was brought up, but anyway, it was the it's called the Emmett Till Act, and you, there it was. I thought it was sort of an interesting moment. You kind of buried the lead. This is twenty twenty, <laughs> and we still yeah, have not right. had anti lynching <laughs> legislation passed. Well, in nineteen thirty four, uh, Senator Wagner, Robert Wagner, New York tried, and of course, the Southern senators stopped whoa, him. Whoa, <laughs> so stunning. Well my, well, my favorite story goes to the purge taking place. Uh, in the White House, we know that Donald Trump, now that he feels freed from uh, uh, having been acquitted, is out to rid the White House of any snakes that he believes, uh, deep state people who are there. He's already started with the policy director of the Pentagon and a couple of others. Uh, and he has put back in charge of this a guy named John McEntee, who was his former body man during the campaign. He's 29 years old. He was fired by John Kelly because he had a compulsive gambling habit. Uh, Trump has brought him back and put him in charge of the personnel office, and he has hired as his assistant a college senior. And the two of them are now identifying, making up the list of everybody who is not considered totally 100% supportive of Donald Trump and therefore will lose their jobs. And here's the kick. They're being helped by Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, who's head of a group called Groundswell, she supported Ted Cruz during the uh, primary uh, in 2016, but she is now Donald Trump's buddy, and she goes to him with a list of people that that she believes are not loyal enough and should be fired. This is the purge. I just wonder, I just want to raise a question. What if, for example, Steve Breyer's wife were doing this under the Obama administration? Can you imagine the outcries the, right. <laughs> that we, we would hear, and yet here's Clarence Thomas's wife involved in this whole silly perch. Mm-hmm. And watch out uh, if you uh, ever said anything critical of Donald Trump. You work anywhere near the White House, you are out of a job. That's it for a great roundtable today. Thanks so much, Lauren. Great to see. You. How can people find you? Uh, on Twitter, usually at lv burke l v b u r k e. Uh huh. And Addie, I am also. Deeply on Twitter, unfortunately. Um, it's Addie uh, S. Baird. Addie S. S. Baird at BuzzFeed. And Matt? At Matt Gertz, G-E-R-T-Z. If you misspell that, you're going to be following a very nasty Republican congressman, and I, I cannot vouch oh, no. for that. Sorry. We don't want Matt Gates. We want no, Matt, no, not Matt at all. Gertz. Right. Wow, you guys aren't the same person? <laughs> 
Yeah, and let me just wrap up with uh, my parting shot for today. Again, uh, my views and not necessarily those of the panel, but with all this angst we were talking about for uh, the Democrats, um, this is maybe a note of hope. Um, I understand that Democrats are frustrated with this primary, the presidential primary. You can't blame them. So my suggestion is to focus on key Senate races instead. With the Senate now split 53 Republicans to 47 Democrats or independents, Democrats only need to pick up four seats to regain control of the Senate. Of course, five would be better to offset um, possible loss with Doug Jones in Alabama. Now, here's the good news. There are at least five states where Democrats have a good shot at flipping a Senate seat. Iowa, Colorado, Maine, Kentucky, and Arizona. In Maine, after destroying any reputation as a moderate by voting to seat Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court and acquit Donald Trump, Susan Collins has sunk to a 37% approval rating. She's now tied with House Speaker Democrat Sarah Gideon. In Arizona, former astronaut Mark Kelly leads incumbent Martha McSally in both polling and fundraising. In Colorado, colorless Cory Gardner is considered the most vulnerable Republican up for re-election, and he's up against the most popular politician in the state, former mayor of Denver and former Governor John Hickenlooper. In Kentucky, Mitch McConnell may have outstayed his welcome. He has now only an 18% approval rating in his home state and faces a tough challenge from former fighter pilot Amy McGrath. And out in Iowa, Joni Ernst is running behind businesswoman Teresa Greenfield in both fundraising and polling. It looks like Iowa, which went Democratic for Barack Obama in 2008 and 2012, could well go Democratic again in 2020. For Democrats, the political reality is winning back the Senate is as important as winning back the White House. Because with Democrats in control of both houses of Congress, there would be no more Trump tax cuts, no more Trump judges, no more Trump attempts to gut Obamacare, and no more money for Trump's stupid wall. So look at the Senate is my suggestion. And with that, thanks to our panel uh, once again, Matt Gertz and Lauren Burke and Eddie Baird. Thanks to all of you for joining us. And please, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Just go to wherever you're listening to this podcast, uh, pull up the Bill Press Pod and click on subscribe. And don't forget to tell your friends to do the same thing. And then we also invite all of you to follow me on Twitter at Bill Press Pod, at Bill Press Pod. That's it for today. Stay strong. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.